Hello, everyone. This is a different type of show today. On April 2nd, we hosted an online event called Aligning Development and Funding Strategies for MedTech Startups. It was a conversation with digital and device commercialization experts in partnership with Venture Cafe in Cambridge. Nemec co-founder Aidan Petrie moderated the discussion, bringing insight from device expert Joe Gordon, who's the vice president of innovation at Zymedica, and digital therapeutic expert Brian Clancy, who you heard from before, who's the co-lead and associate director of AppScript by Akiva. Through our work at Nemec, we know that developing a new medical technology that meets a clinical need is only half the feat of bringing a regulated product to market. Once the technology is deemed useful and of value to patients and users, entrepreneurs must now develop their business strategies and development plans for successful funding. You know, every startup's path to market is different, but there are certain milestones and ways to show investors that they are not only ready to utilize the funding in the most rational way possible, but to make investors comfortable and confident in investing in their company. So listen on to hear audio from this event and tips for aligning development strategies for device and digital therapeutic startups as they develop their business in preparation for pre-seed funding. Thanks very much. Welcome to MedTech Monday on the Road Pod. Um, so Venture Cafe is a nonprofit organization and we rely heavily on the generosity of our partners and our sponsors. So a huge shout out to the New England Medical Innovation Center for being here tonight and their support. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, our moderator for the evening, Aidan Petrie. Uh, if I was to list his entire CV, we would never get to the actual session, but he is the founder of the New England, the founding partner of the New England Med Medical Innovation Center and a adjunct professor at the Rhode Island School of Design. So with that, Aidan, please take it away. Great, thank you very much, Sean, and uh, welcome everybody to the Brave New World. Um, so uh, as Sean said, I um, my, just briefly on me, my background is um, has been many years as the um, one of the founding partners of um, Zymedica, uh, a company that I was with for uh, 25 years. And more um, recently, I, I stepped back from Zymedica and started the New England Medical Innovation Center to, to address some particular needs that we'd, I'd seen in the industry. And at the same time, became a, a, an advisor to lots and lots of different startups. Um, but we'll go into all that in a little while. I would love it if Joe, who is a fellow that I have uh, known for a long time, could give me a little bit about um, his background, and then we'll go to Brian. Sure. So Joe Gordon, I'm the Vice President of Innovation at Zymedica. So my entire career has been spent in the medical field, actually, and somewhat uniquely, all in consultancy. So prior to Zymedica, I worked at a different product developing consultancy in Cambridge, Mass., and I've been with Zymedica now for over 18 years. Thanks, Joe. Uh, hey, everybody. Uh, I'm Brian Clancy. Uh, I work for IQVIA, which is a leading human data science company. And what I do for them is I co-lead our AppScript business. Uh, AppScript is a tool that clinicians use to find and then electronically prescribe what we call digital therapeutics, which are clinically validated digital health apps that treat disease. Um, 
to their patients from their existing EMR workflows. And, you know, I think over my last six years uh, working on building the AppScript business, we've had the opportunity to really, um, really become part of the ecosystem of this emerging treatment modality that we call digital therapy. Um, so happy to share uh, some of my thoughts from, from that experience in today's session. Great, thanks guys. Um, so the, the, the nature of this conversation really came around about trying to um, work between entrepreneurs who are developing technologies and aligning with investors different stages who will be funding them. And the reason for that, and ultimately the reason for setting up Nemec, was that while I had been at Zymedica, it, it, there were many instances where the, it was clear that there was a lack of alignment, a lack of understanding in, on, on both sides as to what was going to happen next and what was going to cost what and, and, and so forth. And, um, and so the, the role that, that we play pretty much every day is that we try to find out where a technology is and trying to assess quite quickly what parts of that technology um, are ready for funding and then find out where the flat spots are so we can then um, help an entrepreneur round out their um, their prospectus such that it is attractive and fundable and will take them on a on a good path towards um, commercialization. And so I think that that in this case, um, going to the in, investors use a, a diligence process, and we built a, a effectively a very early stage diligence process that that allows us to screen companies very quickly. But going to uh, the the device side. Joe, when when somebody walks through the door, what are the uh, with a technology? How do how do you in, how do you engage with them and begin to figure out where they are in time and space? Yeah, so the, the medical device field is definitely unique and, and differentiated from the consumer world. So there's definitely some rigor there that isn't necessarily intuitive to everybody. So really, kind of understanding things like reimbursement and regulatory pathways and have they actually done their diligence and understand those elements of them? Is there actually a product need that they actually have put out there? Sometimes become, people become very passionate about elements or they're convinced that everybody in the world needs it when maybe it's just a problem that they have or, or a very small niche and it may not be as commercially viable. So there's actually a pretty good checklist that Nemec's put together that has a nice holistic view of the world. Um, many of those conversations just start a little bit more kind of probing and they'll come in, they'll lead with where they're really passionate about, excited, and you can kind of bring them along that journey a little bit and kind of make sure that they have actually thought about those holistic elements. Um, many times they take a few steps forward and it's a little bit tough to pull them back a little bit. Uh, I can't tell you how many times we've sat down with people and they pull out a prototype and they say, it's basically done. We have everything figured out, but we just need somebody to make it moldable. And that's not usually the case. Usually there's a, there's a more diligence that comes in there. And Brian, in the digital world, very different, I, I imagine. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, 
You know, relative to the traditional medical device industry, I think there's, you know, some things that are less important and some things that are more important. You know, I think less important is intellectual property. So in in digital health and specifically in digital therapeutics, while there are some proprietary algorithms and there are some patents that uh, can be won and achieved, um, generally investors don't take as much um don't view that as as viable of a moat as uh, is true in the traditional drug business or the traditional medical device um, industry. So, you know, I think at the the very early stages in in digital health and specifically in digital therapeutics, um, you know, having a really good understanding of, you know, um, could this work? Could we actually get people to use this particular app or this particular virtual assistant? And could we deliver real clinical outcomes using this tooling? And does it meet an unmet need? I, I think there's even more emphasis because the it is a little bit more fungible. It's a little bit um, more variable over time. So it's almost like th that core mission of what can we do with this particular product is even more important than when you have a, a, a literally very solid product like a medical device. Yeah, no, and, and the, for, for the demonstration of, uh, on the digital side of showing efficacy that, that something mm -hmm. works, is that easier, you think, than, than with, a, with, with a physical product? Um, it's a good, it's, it's definitely different. Um, you know, I would say that there are some real advantages to proving that a, a, a digital therapy um, in a form factor of an app, um, there are some real advantages in proving that it works relative to uh, hardware, uh, whether that be a drug or whether it be a device. You know, the first advantage is as a fundamentally better safety profile. It's it's quite hard to hurt someone uh, with an app. In most cases, there are some um, very important, you know, uh, you know, areas where that's not true. Um, for example, you could have an insulin bolus calculator that's telling an individual patient how much insulin to take. And that is a relatively high risk or very high risk product. But in general, uh, most uh, digital health apps have a relatively uh, safe uh, safety profile. So they count as low interventional studies, which gives you uh, a little bit more flexibility in terms of what you can do. You know, a second reason that it, it's sometimes easier to do digital health studies is you can actually measure your primary outcome uh, with the app itself. So for example, you might have a validated survey instrument like in depression, you might use a, a PHQ-9, for example, which is a nine-question questionnaire um, that essentially evaluates how depressed a particular individual is. And that might actually be your primary outcome in the study, which means that you don't necessarily need sites to administer uh, that particular test. So there's there are some major advantages, but I will say that you know, whereas there's a lot of medical device concepts that, you know, may be um, very viable businesses without being able to 
prove claims and prove efficacy. You might be able to go to the FDA and say, you know, hey, I, I've got this uh, really interesting device. You know, we, we think it's safe because for these reasons, it has a quality management system. W- will you please approve it? Here's the predicate device. What people are doing in digital therapeutics is they're doing, you know, pivotal randomized controlled trials similar to uh, a drug, a traditional drug company. And they're then submitting those data to FDA in the hopes that they can get a claim such as this app treats depression or this uh, app treats anxiety, et cetera. So that's, I, I think, a little bit of a difference in terms of, um, you know, what you're trying to do um, with your studies, with your clinical validation in, in some cases. So, Joe, as, as you as you listen to, to that, um, and I'm imagining this this uh, individual who's come in with a technology, and you've said, "Well, you're not quite where you think you are," um, and you listen to to what Brian just had to, to to say. Could you give at the highest level, like, what are the kind of core components of you've you've now reset an entrepreneur as to where they actually are? as to some of the things that they're, they're in their future uh, and and that, that they're going to have that they're going to have to address because those are parts of the FDA's guidance. Sure. Yeah. Well, the FDA guidance and just the reality of being a company that you're trying to develop, right? So I mean, if, if I think the theme here is that these are startups and that they're going to have to kind of work their way to the next funding milestone. So we're sensitive to that as an organization and really try to work with the different companies. And sometimes they're aware of it, sometimes they're not. But what's a meaningful milestone that you need to get to so you can actually produce um, either a burden of proof or some sort of evidence that's going to be compelling to different investment companies? Um, And we need to be sensitive to that. So maybe the fastest thing isn't to make a really good-looking, well-designed, looks-like prototype. But that may be the thing that actually really wows people and really kind of gets them to the point where they're more appealing from a funding organization. From more of a technical FDA standpoint, I would take it more to the requirements. I mean, establishing your requirements early, doing appropriate diligence to really understand what that is, dive into the standards to make sure you're not going to get surprised later on in the, the development process and have to back up. Um, that's the number one goal, I'd say, is just an underlining one, is to always move forward and to not be surprised by a failure of a test or be surprised by some requirement or function that you may have overlooked. So by going broad at the beginning and then doing appropriate kind of down selection and refinement of the effort, that's the kind of, that's the fastest way to get to that end point. And, and, and are there, are there any parts, how much of that oftentimes needs to be, do you, do you teach and how much of it is, um, is known typically? Yeah, we try to make as much of it structured as possible too. Like we, we do generational planning as part of all of our projects and it puts some people on their heels because they come in and they said, no, this is the product. This is what we want to do. But by starting to think of what that next product would be, that second generation, it helps everybody. Um, it helps them because part of that activity is to establish what's the minimum viable product that is the development activity we're working on. And that way, if they start to get excited about something else or they start to veer from that very deliberate, very important path, then we can kind of put that to the next stage or the next generation of that product. Also, by looking forward, it allows you to identify some of the elements that maybe you could put some hook points in. Maybe by doing a little bit more work, you could set yourself up for future success. 
Now, now it, it, it sounds like there's, there's almost on, on the digital side, you have, let's find out what works and then, and then capture it. And whereas the, the, the device process is, let's find out what, we, what we're going to do and then do it. They're very different models. Um, today, there are a lot of devices that are connected and they're, and they're attaching them. They are, they are becoming part of systems and closed-loose systems mm-hmm. that involve monitoring and so forth. So how do those two work together? I mean, does, is that another layer of, of complexity or is that just a, a, a richer, deeper program that hopefully offers a, a better pay, patient value? Well, it's complexity. It's also opportunity. Too. So, I mean, I think that's definitely an educational moment and there's fewer and fewer standalone products these days. Everything really is falling more and more into an ecosystem and it's becoming a data-driven world as well. So some of the products you wouldn't think need to have those considerations really benefit by having it. And then by building that data and having finding different ways to mine and potentially even in, in greatly enhancing the performance of your product through machine learning or other algorithms, that's a way to really differentiate yourself and stay ahead of the curve. And another important consideration is the the development timeline on these medical products is pretty long. So you have to be forward thinking or by the time you actually go through that release product, you're gonna be behind the curve. Just to add to that, you know, it's enormous opportunity. I mean, I have a coffee mug that's Bluetooth connected, and it's it's kind of a novelty item. But I think the point is everything is connected nowadays, even things that we thought might not be. And of course, things like insulin pumps, or things like inhalers, or things like you know pretty much every drug delivery device. There's of course a role for those devices to be connected to measure whether or not we're taking the adequate dose to measure whether or not we're using them correctly. So the opportunity is enormous. But if you look at some of these fields, um, those two fields I mentioned just now, um, so connected insulin pens, for example, or connected inhalers, these products have really quite slowly been coming to market for the greater part of a decade, which really does underlie the enormous complexity associated with them. You know, oftentimes, companies that are trying to uh, really commercialize these ecosystems are, are really almost commercializing five different products at the same time. You literally might, you know, the Apple Watch is actually two medical devices. It's actually two products in the eyes of the FDA. It's a hardware product and there's a software product, which is the algorithm. Um, you know, some of these uh, closed loop um, systems for uh, kind of artificial pancreas systems there's three different devices. You have, you know, an insulin pump, you have um, a continuous glucose monitor, and you have an algorithm that's basically taking information out of that CGM and telling your insulin pump how much insulin to give you. That's, that's a lot of, it's multiple devices, and it's a lot of considering, okay, how do these devices work together? Uh, which creates a lot of human factors research to use an FDA term uh, that can get quite complicated quite quickly. And and uh, between uh, for both of you, is the value that you see in these system designs or or solutions to the patient, to the hospital systems, to the to the economics of of our healthcare system, which we 
you know, have have to take more control of? Is is the value um, readily element, um, evident, and and are it, it, are the the entrepreneurs tuned into really how much value they can provide beyond being clinically useful? I think the the examples that Brian was just referencing in terms of some of the drug delivery systems that have taken advantage of building a digital ecosystem around them. That's where the value is a no-brainer. Uh, even if you pull it as far forward as the clinical trials, which are horrendously expensive for some of these pharmaceutical companies, you all have heard that the adherence levels on some of these drugs and even life-saving cancer drugs, you're getting a 10% adherence. It's, it's unfathomable, but it's the reality. And by bringing in some of these digital aids and really kind of bringing in elements that can drive that adherence, as well as tracking efficacy, that becomes quantitative evidence that those pharmaceutical companies are able to leverage. It also can keep the patients engaged, which dropout rates is a huge issue with clinical trials. So by encouraging them to be in there and having these digital aids that can make sure that they are following those adherence, and they also give them tangible encouragement to stay in the program by making things like physician visits not as common. So maybe some of these data monitors, sensors, they can cut down the number of times they have to go to the hospital, which is usually some of those pain or friction points that makes people drop out. So those are all checkboxes to say, yeah, there's value there. No, I, I always have a, a, a somewhat crude metric in in as as I look at companies and and just to start with, I think about you know who who cares about this technology, who's going to pay for it, and how you're going to do it. And at a, at, at the very Basics. So is there some clinical re- relevance? And when it comes to the to the clinical efficacy, how on on the device side do you ascertain that? On so, is is that ascertained on something that um, has not been fully built out in form that can be used on a on a patient, on a human? Sorry, I didn't quite get that. It, it, when, when, when a technology comes in, its clinical efficacy that it's doing something useful is in a very early form factor and it has been tested on the bench at some level. How, how does, a, does an entrepreneur demonstrate to a funding group that this thing is, is, is going to bring some clinical merit to uh, humankind? I see your point. Yeah, that's certainly critical. I mean, that's part of the value proposition that's going to be really important. And that's also where the reimbursement model comes in as well, too. Because if if this is a commodity treatment that you're doing better, you may not be able to charge more for it. So it could be the best widget out there, but it may not actually have a place in this world or at least within the current organization. So if you're not able to show that you're going to actually advance the standard of care, then that's something you have to give some pause to and, and make sure you're actually solving a real world problem. So by your own three metrics, I think that's one of the first ones you should go to, are people gonna care about it? Um, but making the leap that somebody's coming in and actually has a tangible technology, I think that's really where you actually have to kind of mark your niche. Look at the current standard of care. Um, if you're able to increase the efficacy of the treatment and get the patient out of the hospital earlier, that's in a way that you could actually quantify that benefit very easily. So it's a little bit tricky. You almost have to figure out what the, what the product is and what its use application is, and then ultimately find the way that you're able to kind of quantify that tangible benefit. 
And Brian, on the on the digital side, what what's the measure against that is that that are commonly used on the digital with digital product? Yeah, sure. So, you know, many in the digital therapeutics industry are ultimately going after the the same primary endpoints that a, a typical drug would have in that same therapeutic area. So, for example, if you have a a digital therapeutic for type two diabetes. Um, just like the drugs in type 2 diabetes look to uh, lower HbA1c, which is a lab test that correlates with glycemic control, um, a digital therapeutic in their studies are also trying to prove a reduction in HbA1c um, in their clinical trials. Um, another thing that I'll add, though, is that increasingly um, the digital health industry and specifically the digital therapeutics industry are very interested in what payers call HEDIS metrics, um, which are essentially how payers judge the quality of the care that their members provide. And they ultimately become very important for certain payers, such as Medicare Advantage plans, and ultimately drive how much, how profitable a payer is, and therefore um, the value proposition of an app being used by their members. Uh, so that's another thing to note. Um, just while I have the opportunity, though, Aiden, um, I know that, you know, the audience um, might not all necessarily be, you know, ready to get sponsored their, you know, uh, $2 million or, or, or more pivotal randomized controlled trial. So, you know, sometimes when we think about the life cycle of a digital health app or a digital therapeutic that's trying to be evidence-based, a really common life cycle that we see is you know, initially being evidence-based, which means that you might not have evidence that your product works, but you have a clinical literature review or you have a guideline that's in the peer-reviewed literature and you're building a product against those recommendations, we would generally call that evidence-based. You know, the next step would be some type of proof of concept study where you're measuring maybe in a small patient population, maybe 50 to 100 patients, um, certain key kind of efficacy signals, but also usability, you know, does an individual generally use the app on a daily basis or whatever frequency they're required to, to get the benefit out of it. And at that stage, you actually have enough data to potentially try to go to FDA for what we call breakthrough status, um, where, where sometimes uh, FDA will take very small studies and consider them. Um, but once you have that data, usually you try to raise money off of that data for those pivotal randomized controlled trials um, uh, that I was talking about earlier. So th there's, there's really a, a road towards clinical validation where you know all of it based in the peer-reviewed literature, but at different levels of expense, you know, going from essentially secondary research to going into like very small studies to going into uh, truly regulatory grade um, studies. So that, that it what it sounds like is is that on the digital therapeutic side, the actual development of the of the, the app, the technology. Is is mm -hmm. not the the largest part of the cost. It, it is more of building a sort of credible, uh, hit, a, a credible narrative over time that this is a worthwhile 
um, and valuable technology, and that may put more of the cost profiles into the clinical trials and, and put more of a burden on, on that. You know, I, I wouldn't like to generalize because I think there are extremes on, on both sides. Um, you know, I, I think that the clinical trial outlays are generally, you know, a large fraction of use of funds when you do raise money. Um, but to use a, a, a quote that I like, I didn't come up with this, but you know, digital therapeutics companies, they need to think like a pharma company, they need to act like a medical device entrepreneur, and they need to build like a tech company. And what that really means is as follows, you're, you know, basically creating a clinical trial roadmap, like a, like a little biotech company would, but you're pulling together what ultimately is going to be a regulated medical device. Um, so you need to have a quality management system, et cetera. But then you also have to build an engineering team. So you're going to have UX engine, um, designers. You're going to have back-end, front-end, you know, iOS developers, Android developers. And these people are going to be on your staff with a product manager and a scrum master and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, how that looks, you know, at, at, a, at one end of the extreme is, a company called Achille Interactive in uh, Boston, they actually have essentially, uh, it's almost like having a biotech company and a gaming company under one roof because they uh, have all of those resources that a traditional biotech company would. But on top of that, they have all the resources that a gaming company would make. They have a, a therapeutically active video game. And that requires all types of, you know, very high-end, um, you know, engineering and creative skill sets to pull that together over the long term. Um, but, but that's, you know, w when you're out uh, at being a more mature kind of a company, I think that in the early days, you know, a lot of these products were um, originally developed at an academic institution, just like devices. So there's, you know, some prototypes, something to start with. Um, in those early early stages of the company. So, so Joe, and from from the perspective and and with an eye to the sort of the the money side, is there a pattern that um, you've you've seen a lot of, of products go through the cycle, um, physical products going through the cycle of development? What do you is there a pattern there that that you see regularly, or or is it sort of very different every time? I'd almost think it's different every time. And I think the pattern that I've seen in terms of companies ultimately be successful, which I think is the root of your comment, is it's more about the teams themselves than the types of products that they're embarking on. Um, you get the, the right entrepreneurs in there, you get the right leadership, you get the business savvy aspect of that. Um, that's really ends up being the recipe for success. Obviously, having a good product idea is, is, is an expectation as well, and obviously linked to that. Um, there is a lot of cost, cost of money, though. I mean, there's a small percentage of products that ultimately go to market. I think it's sub 10% in the device industry of how many actually will launch. Um, so having that strong team, I think, is, is the one that jumps out at me as the strongest pattern. Now, over the years, we... I, I, we saw companies, some of which were going to build themselves into companies, and other times we saw very small teams that would work 
very fast and they would outsource absolutely everything um, and essentially prepare to flip themselves to a larger group or a, or a strategic at some point. Is that pattern still in play? Is that what you see these days and which do you prefer? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I mean, I think it's it's certainly one of the bigger challenges with medical device development. So people that are aware of it, it usually follows a phased approach. So the ISO standard kind of mandates that and most people do that by numbering their phases. So phase zero to phase five is most common. And the reality is you need a different staff when you're actually doing a phase zero development as opposed to the later post-launch uh, phases. So if you're going to build a company, you really have to be strategic in that type of thinking. And if you're only going to need people for a certain period of time, and then you're going to have to be shuffling them out, then that needs to be part of your business strategy. So if you're establishing your company as one that's going to have a series of products or product lines or generations of that, then maybe it does make a little bit more sense to build out critical staff and at least have representation across those different phases. But that's just one axis. The other axis is that within the medical device, you're gonna need regulatory and quality and manufacturing and mechanical, electrical and software if you're doing that, uh, quality assurance, design assurance. So there's a lot of different disciplines that also need to be involved. So that can very quickly kind of exponentially kind of grow into a very large team. And then it's really hard to manage having the right number of team at the right time. So the easy way to, to navigate that and kind of go through those um, kind of peaks and valleys is to make sure that you find the right outsource partners for the right period of time. And, and similar on, on the, the on Brian, <laughs> you're on mute, Brian. Oh, sorry about that. I, um, of course, uh, um, my uh, my ear pods uh, died in the middle of the conversation. <laughs> you know, this is the problem with software and technology, right? Um, but um, you know, I think that I've seen less outsourcing in in digital. I would say, and you know, I think that you know, I've personally outsourced the development of a digital therapeutic for a short period of time. I think it was about six months to get things started. And that kind of gave us enough time to, you know, have our own internal team. But really, in the world of software, um, the product's never done. We're shipping, you know, on, on our AppScript software, we're shipping updates every two weeks. Um, you know, most digital therapeutics companies, it might not be every two weeks, but it's at least every couple of months, uh, even as a regulated product. Um, that's a whole different thing, but you have minor releases and, and major releases of, of even regulated software. And, you know, if you, because you know up front that, um, you know, uh, building a software product is kind of like having a baby. Like you kind of have to, you know, commit yourself to supporting it for a long period of time. It's not something that you can kind of build and then be done. And and that lends itself to more insourcing, I would say. And and so sort of just to, to take that a little further, are the sorts of products that you are, are seeing coming into the into the pure digital therapeutics market do they fit it? What are the categories that they're typically fitting into? Is there a pattern there? For, you know, there are certainly things that the device companies are doing that digital will never do. But what? Are, what? Where are the areas of of growth and interest in the on the digital side? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
I think that you can categorize the different categories of, of um, let's call them prescription grade digital health apps uh, in a few different ways. Um, one way you can categorize them is by mechanism of action. So what I mean by that is, you know, some uh, digital therapeutics, their means of driving efficacy is to um, essentially take something that was traditionally done in a brick and mortar setting and reduce it into something that you can be done on an app. Um, so for example, Omada Health, they provide a, um, an app-driven diabetes prevention program that offers coaching through the app. And it really replaces having someone have to drive to a physical location to receive their diabetes prevention program. Um, you see that in other areas as well, where pulmonary rehab or cardiac rehab apps actually replace a traditional brick and mortar. Another mechanism of action I mentioned earlier is you can directly stimulate the brain in interesting ways that can be therapeutic. Um, that can be done um, uh, by companies like Achille Interactive, which have a very precisely tuned algorithm that is shown uh, even on radiology scans to activate certain parts of the brain that ultimately treat uh, conditions like ADHD or other cognitive disorders. Um, another way to think about it is uh, business model. So some digital therapeutics are, are quote unquote prescription digital therapeutics. They're prescribed by uh, physicians. Um, another category we would call um, you know, non-prescription products or payer-to-patient products, where a payer will actually look at claims data, find all the eligible patients for a particular product, and then either email or direct mail and say, hey, you have the opportunity to enroll in this particular program. Um, so those are a couple of different ways um, to think about um, the space, uh, both in terms of, um, you know, what what's the the driver of that efficacy, but also um, how you're trying to commercialize it. So now going back to, um, and I, there are a number of questions come up, which, which we will go to shortly, <clears throat> but just going back to that triangle of who cares, who pays, and how are you going to do it? I'm interested to know how you go through, for, for investors, um, a lot of times investors, they, they're not they're not physicians. They often are not technical. Um, they will likely know a bit about the, the regulatory process and so forth, but they're really interested in how, how is this going to make them money? And if it makes them money, um, it presumably is, is getting paid for by somebody. Um, and so um, I'll go to Joe first. <clears throat> how, do, how do you see companies assess the value of their technology, not the clinical value, but the market value of their, of their technology so that they can look the investors in the, the eye and say, this is going to be big. I think that's where you got to get out to the field. So, I mean, I think that's the user research and actually going out and interviewing the actual, the actual kind of all the stakeholders, I'd say, and not even just the end users. Oftentimes the, the surgeons aren't even the decision makers. You actually have to go to the decision makers or determine who they are and whether they're the buyers or the people that are actually handling the bundles within the hospitals. So that kind of goes to one of the earlier points of just making sure that somebody's going to be actually, somebody's going to pay it. It's going to be successful from that financial side and that you're, 
your value proposition is actually appropriate. But I'd say, I, during, or go ahead. And we don't have a trivial payment system here. There are a lot of there are a lot of different groups. I mean, one of the things that the COVID is throwing into the into the mix right now is the traditional payment models are getting blown up completely. And in, in, there could be insurance companies and there could be reimbursement. And is most of what you're looking at reimbursable product or um, is a lot of it not? I would say most of it is. And that's one of those reasons why just that upfront planning and consideration around different options or permutations the product could take. So by adding in some enhancement or some other aspect, we mentioned some of the data capability earlier, you can actually lump multiple codes together. So maybe it becomes a procedure, but it also becomes some sort of an analytic or some sort of a tracker that the physician can actually get credit for actually doing that follow-up. And so maybe it's actually the, the product itself that's doing most of the heavy lifting, but maybe that's a differentiator that's actually gonna make that product successful because now all of a sudden the payer, it's gonna eliminate a pain point, it's gonna be enhancement for the patient, but then the physician or, or the, ultimately the value proposition is a stair step better because you've given that the additional functionality. And Brian, what are, what are the pat patterns you see at, at your end in, in how, how those products are, are typically getting paid for? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I would say um, in digital health more broadly or, or even in prescription grade kind of digital health products, um, and, and not all prescription grade products need to be prescribed. Um, I, I think there's basically three ways that um, companies are doing well and making money. Um, the first is that you can have um, evidence-based products that can be freely, that can be downloaded off of the app store and have a subscription model and can make a lot of money for the app developer. You know, companies like Headspace, Calm, Noom are all hundred million plus revenue companies that um, are very savvy digital marketers and app marketers that have very sticky products with subscription models that are doing very well. You know, a second category is these payer to patient uh, model companies. So typically what companies like Livongo and Amata Health, um, which are again, making hundreds of millions of dollars are doing is they're knocking on self-insured employers doors. They're saying, Hey, we've got this amazing program. It has the ability to reduce costs for your members, for your employees. Um, we charge, you know, $70 a month. If you're a Livongo, we can tell you at the end of every month, how many people are on the program and we'll bill you accordingly. You know, that's been a very successful model. You know, JP Morgan thinks that Livongo is going to make close to half a billion dollars in 2021, uh, which is really, really attractive. Um, I think the third and, and the least kind of validated at this particular point in time is there's companies like Paratherapeutics and Achille Interactive that are going after prescription digital therapeutics that seek to be reimbursed through the pharmacy benefit, which is the benefit that pays for drugs um, and is traditionally administered by pharmacy benefit managers like CVS Caremark or um, Express Scripts. The good news in that area is that um, the two leading pharmacy benefit managers, both Express and Caremark, have both announced digital health formularies where they intend to add, just like you have a formulary of drugs, um, you know, kind of tier two, tier three drugs with different copays, 
Um, they've also announced these types of formularies for, uh, for these types of products. So um, we will likely to see some uh, very interesting things happening in pharmacy benefit land uh, quite soon. Now, one of the areas that has that I see coming across um, the NAMIC desk more and more is folk doing things with AI and the promise of AI to be able to see the unseeable, make uh, personalized medicine and many, many different things. I was recently asked if I could find 10,000 eyeballs that could be looked at with, a, with an accompanying diagnosis. And, and um, the answer was, like, I wasn't be able to find that that week. Um, so how, have, um, how is AI coming into either the uh, device and connected device world or the pure digital world? Is that, is that a player yet? And are there some good examples of where AI is, is um, getting into the game? Yes. I mean, that's really the progression. As we talked earlier, everything's part of an ecosystem now. And the value of having the ecosystem is really making something different from that. So it was recently was working on an orthopedic product, which is about as far as any kind of technology you think if you go in and have an orthopedic procedure done. But by actually having an application that can encourage both the pre and post op part of that, um, maybe even linking that with some of the biosensors, even some of the Apple Watch technologies, starting to even monitor how the recovery time is. And are they, maybe they went in for a knee replacement and you're able to measure the fact that they had an altered gait before the procedure. And now you're able to track how quickly you can get down back to a proper gait, right? So that machine learning can take some of that information and start to inform the procedures. And maybe now you're able to link that to some of the procedure variants some of the differences in the procedures that actually can now you can quantify have better outcomes because you're able to track that and that use the machine learning and compiling the ai to get there and and i use the orthopedic as one of the least intuitive places where you think that that would be beneficial but it's just a good example of how it's really permeating its way through all facets of medical there's a lot any thoughts on digital health too um you know and it's it's a it's everything from you know the most basic stuff like, um, you know, it, it's very popular in the world of apps today to use uh, certain machine learning tools um, um, to, um, for example, when do you text someone a reminder to make, to take their medication at, at a time that is right for that particular individual? So app developers like Metasafe um, have um, over, you know, hundreds of thousands of users, millions of users have been able to train their own machine learning algorithms on, you know, when to prompt someone to do something. Um, I, I think that's kind of on the more broad based level. There's actually uh, analytics platforms like Localytics that actually have that kind of capability out of the box. And you can actually integrate that into your app um, just by buying their services, which is kind of interesting. But I think on the more proprietary end, um, and this is getting into the world of more digital biomarkers, which, which I think what Joe was kind of referencing as well, you know, having really sophisticated algorithms that are saying um, e even kind of simple things, but it, it gets complicated when you're thinking about um, small amounts of data of um, 
oh, somebody's heart rate is elevated, but they haven't taken many steps recently. Maybe they have atrial fibrillation. That's actually a patent that a company called AliveCore has on their algorithm um, for when you want to take an uh, ECG reading to see if you have atrial fibrillation. Um, and that's actually an algorithm or a concept that is being used by a number of different companies today. Um, so there's a lot of uh, very interesting um, use cases for AI in this area. And, um, you know, I think I recently saw a list of 100 AI algorithms that had been FDA cleared um, over the past few years. So it's not something that doesn't have regulatory um, precedence and, you know, a viable path to market, even though, um, you know, it's, it's, it's never going to be easy innovating. But the challenge a lot of times is just is to be able to, to what I've seen is to be able to gather the, the, to gather the data to be able to base the AI and, and, and actually tighten it up. Now, quick question for Sean, and I'm, and I'm asking you, Sean, because I just want to blow this thing up. If I hit the QA button, is that the okay or is that is the questions and answers right there my friend yes that's, that's, that's what i figured but i didn't know it was yeah um, um so i want you perfect i want you to sift through that aiden and uh i've queued one question up so that i want you to look through that and i'll ask this one right now okay so this one i'm going to send towards joe's way and i want you to think about this first uh, i just wanted to chew on this for a second somebody wants to know um you spoke about you spoke about talking to C-level people in the hospitals. Um, what is the trick to getting to the door to interview these people? Think about that for a second, and I'm going to send a question towards Brian, and then we'll come back to you, okay? So a question to Brian. In terms of the health and med tech apps, uh, physicians are documented about having a little bit of burnout. So would it be, is it, uh, in, the in the physician-patient interaction time, it's about 15 to 17 minutes. Uh, is more data going to set, lead to more burnout or do you think that they're able to handle this? Yeah, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge question. I, I think we all need to be thinking about the quadruple bottom line in healthcare. You know, people are familiar with the triple bottom line, but now we need to be thinking about also the clinician experience and doing these things. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, in our app script business, this is incredibly important. Our brand promise is we help clinicians to prescribe the right app to the right patient um, in 20 seconds or less from their existing clinical workflows. And um, that has been drilled into us by clinicians, how important that is. When we first came to market, we had a, a, a product that a, a doctor would have to go to appscript.net and have to log in and type in uh, the patient's cell phone number to send them a prescription for that particular app. And that didn't work great. We got a lot of feedback that says, you know, look, it needs to be in Epic. It needs to be in our existing workflow. It needs to be really fast. I don't want to key in anything. And our product wouldn't work if, if, if we didn't accomplish some of those integration feats that we have. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, I think that uh, clinicians who've experienced the EMR integrations or, 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 you know, really what the electronic medical record has done to their lives are right to be a little cautious about what new technology they adopt and they support as a profession. I think that in the world of apps, I think not all apps are created equal. I think that there's some apps that have 
Um, um, I think most clinicians are most concerned about, you know, if I recommend this app, is there going to be a data stream coming back that I'm liable for that I need to monitor? Um, I think that there's a lot of really valuable apps that have very low expectation, both on the patient side and the clinician side to enable that kind of bi-directional communication of data. For example, if a patient comes in and they say, hey doc, I'm stressed, um, I have low uh, to moderate anxiety, what should I do? And you recommend them the Headspace app that has randomized controlled trials showing that 10 days of Headspace reduces stress by 14%. The likelihood that that patient is going to want to share their daily meditation status with you is very low, but the potential benefit of recommending that app is quite high. So, you know, I, th I think it depends on the category. And I think in those categories where we do have an expectation on the clinician to monitor data, there needs to be reimbursement and time put into place to safeguard that particular clinician's uh, uh, lifestyle. The good news is that is being done. So there's codes that have been recommended and reimbursed by CMS that cover remote patient monitoring. And in certain cases, that may make sense to a particular clinician's practice. So just uh, you, you mentioned the quadruple aim. I'm not sure that everybody knows what the triple aim is. Um, and from an investment point of view, the, the we would look for anything to any particular technology to, to play some part in the uh, triple aim. So could you just very briefly, before we go to Joe on, the, on, the, on his question, just explain what the triple aim is for anybody who doesn't, isn't aware? Yeah, sure. Um, so it, it's really um, it, it's really three different things. So it's all about um, you know we always you know and this is one of the things that really motivates me is is we all hear that the healthcare experience sucks. So the first aim of the triple aim is to improve that experience. The second is we all hear that you know relative to the money that we spend, we don't get great outcomes, particularly in the U.S. So the second aim is can we improve the health of populations? And the third aim is, can we do it at a lower cost? And then the fourth is this clinician experience, uh, which has been um, really uh, re-emphasized as of late, uh, particularly in the context of clinician burnout. Very good, thank you. And Joe, would you do you remember your question? And, and <laughs> I do remember it. And with this much time to think about it, I feel the pressure better be good to answer. <laughs> So I, I think this question was prompted because I did describe going in and finding the right stakeholders within the hospital. So I think the question was directed specifically at C-suite, but I would open that up to make sure you're talking to the right people. Um, one thing that's always stuck in my head, and it was over a decade, decade ago, somebody told it to me, but it was a sales rep that was describing that they had this superior product in their portfolio, it was a surgical device, and he couldn't understand why it wasn't successful. And ultimately he found out it was really long package and it didn't fit on any of the shelves. So none of the nurses would actually place the order because they didn't know where to put it. So it's one of those things, if you're not thinking holistically, you're not looking at all the stakeholders in the mix and you're not talking to them and pulling that information out, then ultimately you run that risk of not being successful. As to how to get in contact with them. So we're a product development consultancy. So we always have a client. So oftentimes that's the first place we'll inquire is that do they have a network that we could tap into that's the most efficient and cost-effective way for them in particular. 
the next one is iMedica has a network as well too. So we have a certain group of people that we can reach out to that we've established over time and really work to foster because getting into to ORs is a lot harder than it used to and getting access to these clinical professionals is a lot harder than it used to be. Um, we have a research group and that is a big part of their job when we actually do these research studies and we need to get the right participants. So as mentioned, we'll tap into those first two, but we also have a network of different recruiters that are specializing in being able to find the right people. And sometimes that's people that are actual end users of the product. Oftentimes it's actually industry experts or people that are actually working in the hospitals. So I've got a, 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 another question here, um, which it's just, um, what do you think the what do you see as being some of the wrong areas that that early stage companies um, spend their capital on? So I mentioned earlier on that many times people take four steps ahead, right? So I think that's the easiest example of spending the money incorrectly because oftentimes if you do some of this diligence or you understand your regulatory pathway, you may develop the wrong product. Uh, oftentimes they'll actually really refine a prototype and advance the technology before they actually do a requirements investigation. And maybe they realize after they do the requirements that they haven't developed the product that's actually going to suit the needs that they needed to. Yeah. And I'll, I'll pipe in there and, and, and say one of the, one of the flags that I see is a really office. Um, that uh, you walk in and if too much money got spent on the office, then that might not be a might not be a good thing. <laughs> Brian, any thoughts on that? Oh no, um, it, it, nothing, nothing major to add. I, you know, I, I I think you know use of funds is really specific to individual companies and and what they need to be do, doing and what their priorities are. You know, I I think that you know it if your focus is, is bringing the most cutting edge um, technology um, into place, then you, know, you should probably be spending money on your technology. If your goal is to you know, take something that's relatively low tech, but prove that it works in your particular implementation of it, then you're probably spending more of your money on clinical trials and uh, engaging with relevant key opinion leaders and these types of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll again, as I think about it, a lot of times the companies will spend money on the on the component that is most easily doable and that might be the mechanics or it might be and and any anybody with reasonable knowledge can understand that that could be done while something else may not be understood and i always see it as a process of advancing all the different steps more or less at the same time you know is the ip in good condition do we have a, a payment or reimbursement strategy that's developed enough to put in front of the funders? And, and have you demonstrated that you validated that people actually want something and you've, you've got some um, verbatims as to something coming back? So I see it more as just keeping an eye, spinning all the plates at the same time and actually making sure that, that nothing has got, uh, to Joe's point, too advanced and way ahead of another component. It's a rather, the whole process has always struck me as being rather asymmetric. And you have to try and keep it as as, as you can at any one time. I just, so my, my last question I think will be, what does a great team look like um, on the 
on the device side and what does a great team look like on the the uh, digital therapeutic side? Yeah, I mean, I link that to, to what's most successful, right? So, I mean, I think you want a complementary team. So you need somebody that can really understand the business side of it and ultimately somebody that can understand the, the clinical or medical side. I think that that usually are kind of the, the, the kind of foundational cornerstones of what's most successful. I think if you're going to add a third one to that, it's somebody that really understands that marketing side and really kind of to your point, are, are you validating the need in the industry and you find the product well next to that. You can obviously expand the team beyond that. Uh, it's when you start to get a cluster of people in one area and then it's disproportionate, right? So that makes it, I found a lot of times that that ends up being a challenging organization to work with because their, their focus is so concentrated in one area, getting them to appreciate and understand the value of focusing their attention in those other areas becomes a, a chore. It becomes work to remind them that they have to do this here. And, uh, and Brian, uh, but you did your perfect digital team? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, that classic, you know, somebody who's more technology oriented and somebody who's more commercially oriented is important, um, of course. Um, you know, I think that really depending on what kind of channel you're trying to commercialize your digital therapeutic product or let's say prescription grade digital health product through um, really drives what type of skill sets you need. Um, you know, if you're trying to be the next Headspace or Noom, um, you need to be an expert digital marketer on the Apple Store. Um, so you need to be able to acquire new users um, at a very, you know, effective uh, price point. If you are trying to sell to self-insured employers, you know, having somebody in your organization that deeply understands um, really the operations around these organizations, how you show eligibility, uh, how you manage eligibility, but how, you, how also to submit a medical claim is our key differentiators in that particular market. If you're a prescription digital therapeutic company, you need to have people who really understand in and out how to um, really use the NCPDP standards, which is a particular standard uh, that's being developed for app prescribing in the US. Um, you also need to understand how to put together a whole value chain that enables you to submit claims uh, through the pharmacy benefit, which requires usually contracting uh, a specialty pharmacy or hub service. Uh, so. You know, people who have deep understanding in the channel of interest is incredibly important, and I'm sure that's true of med tech companies as well. Okay, well, I I, uh, I think we're probably getting to the cocktail hour, uh, or if we were actually all together um, at Venture Cafe, we'd be going uh, somewhere to, to network. In this case, it will be a little different. So, um, well, Sean and Venge Cafe, I hope that was useful, informative. Um, these are two of the smartest guys I know. And, and if, it shows. Uh, you know, I, I hope it was useful. This was very useful. And we should be thanking you guys. So thank you for your time tonight, the New England Medical Innovation Center. Your support is, uh, is second to none. So thank you for your time tonight. Everyone, you, cheers, take care. I didn't know that my camera was on like that, but... Well, cheers again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your Love attention.